We come from water. Every human being comes from water. It's the sacred gift of life, and the rivers themselves. Uh, uh, without rivers, we wouldn't have salmon. We wouldn't have trees. We wouldn't have all living things because water sustains us, you know. And the gift of life comes from water. Each and every one of us, and all living things, are born out of water. David Hilaire is a member of the Lumi Nation. He is also the founder of a media production and leadership institute, Setting Sun Productions. It's located in Bellingham, Washington, in the homeland of the Lumi people and Coast Salish Territory. Hilaire is overseeing a number of projects, and they all have a common thread, using the power of storytelling to bring Native people together to raise awareness, cultivate leadership, and protect what he calls their sacred obligation. The inspiration of his work, he traces back to his great-grandfather, which is where our conversation begins. My great-grandfather formed a song and dance group uh, around 1900 because he's seeing the amount of change occurring in our homeland here in the uh, Salish Sea. So he took it upon himself to go out and educate people about this place that we live in and, the, and what is sacred to our people and what is important for our life way. And it all ends up being about salmon because salmon is central to our way of life. And he started that work in 1900. And the tradition has been carried on since then through today across six generations. What is the Salmon People Project? The Salmon People Project uh, came up as a result of my being on the Tribal Council for the Lummi Nation and witnessing the change, the very palpable change in our people uh, when salmon returned. And I could see it in the people's eyes. I could see it in the stories that were shared and the amount of uh, teachings that were passed on from uh, the old people to the young people that were helping uh, with the harvest and uh, sharing in the abundance of salmon in our community. So I decided to uh, start documenting it with film uh, those things that occur to our people. I let the world know that, hey, uh, we're telling the story of the salmon people. And uh, immediately other tribal people up and down the Pacific coast said, hey, we're salmon people too. So I got really interested and started following up on these contacts. Salmon people uh, expanded rapidly to include uh, tribes in California and Northern California on the Klamath River. It included the Alba people over in the Olympic Peninsula who were successful in removing a dam from their river so that their salmon can return. And for the first time in, I think, 13 years, the Alba people are going to go fishing and be one with the river and the salmon once again. And so we also include, uh, just this year, a leader from the Pebble Mine controversy on Bristol Bay, where they stopped the allowance of a permit for a gold and copper mine to come in and be dug and destroy salmon habitat there. But also tribes along the Columbia and Snake River, where they're really actively trying to remove dams from their rivers so that they can they can fish once again. Mm. As you describe that, it really brings to mind 
the controversy around efforts to try to stop the raising of the Shasta Dam. And it sounds like from what you're describing that other Native people, salmon people have been effective in getting the dams removed. Can you talk to me a little bit about what you learned? How did that happen? Well, it happened uh, because the people, especially women, never gave up. Chairwoman Frances Charles of the Elba Nation, she uh, spoke to our young people that we gathered. She said, you know, it only took us a hundred years, so never give up on what you believe in. A hundred years it had taken us to get those dams out. A hundred years our ancestors had fought. It was the women at that time that went back to D.C. and fought for what we had fought for, for what you're fighting for right now. They told us that it would not happen, and it happened. It's those kinds of messages that we want to get out and serve as an inspiration to other people that are doing work in that manner, you know, where there seems like it's insurmountable odds that they face. But uh, if you believe in something uh, with enough strength and fortitude, you can make things happen. And, and that's happening, you know. So I just want to bring them together and amplify their work so that there's more hope built for other people and they're doing uh, both tribal and non-tribal. So it's not just removing dams and restoring rivers and, and bringing the forest back to life and, and try to do as much as we can for the, I think, the lifeblood of all of us, which is rivers. And they carry that force to sustain all of us if we just allow it to be what it is, you know, which is free. I read on your website at settingsunproductions.org about the tribal creation story. And I was really taken by the way the salmon are talked about. Our relationship to the salmon started with the creation story. Before we were here, the animals met and decided that they needed to help us. And that's when salmon stepped forward and said, I will give myself. And that is when the ancient covenant started. And now our brother is, is suffering. Yes, I have. And, and yes, we're hearing it today from the person that you were quoting is uh, Shannon Wheeler, the leader from the Nez Perce Nation. You know, the gift of life, you know, is what he's talking about. And the salmon gave its life for us so we can live. But now it's time to give back, you know. So it's the whole idea of gratitude. It's the whole idea of sharing, you know. And it's such a simple thing, humble thing, but very sacred in that if we learn how to do that, I think we have a better chance at our own existence when you think about it, that if we, if we learn how to share, we're going to be, we're going to be okay, you know, but if we just continue to accumulate and live in this selfish manner, it's not sustainable. Can you talk to me a little bit about what this growing movement looks like? Well, the climate crisis that we're in the middle of, the growing uh, gap between the rich and the poor, it just goes on and on, nuclear war, all of that, it's telling us that we need each other. It, it tells us that the only way that we really truly can respond is if we unite, you know, not in isolation, tribal versus non-tribal. We can model a behavior such that it calls uh, for unity and we act on unity, then they'll learn 
what true leadership is about, you know. But if, if we just kind of do it in isolation, I, I think we'll all be running uphill. As you're talking about that, we're living in a time now with a presidential administration and interior department led uh, by a member of the Native community. Have you seen change under this leadership? Well, I think I see a tribal leader uh, taking a stand. So standing with her and supporting her any way that we can and making sure that when these issues come up that we're there with her, you know, because it's going to take community action as well as policy change, as well as actually real reallocation of money to really be effective. There's so many layers of action that you just described for the young people that you're trying to motivate, the young people that you're investing in and trying to create ways for them to engage so that they are not hopeless. I'm curious how they are seeing Native people in leadership positions and whether there have been recent events or actions that continue to strengthen their resolve to calling for the changes that you're describing. Yeah, we uh, we include the youth in everything we do. We have six young people, college age, that are actually going to universities, but also work here full time. And we bring them along. We uh, stand behind them as we promote their voice and bringing their voice together with other young voices so that they're heard, you know. So that's kind of the first step as we learn more and more about what is going on in this world. I think those voices will will strengthen and they'll um, actually have more motivation to learn about the history here, you know. We understand that there's been a lot of things done wrong and the annihilation of our people, the genocide of our people over time. And then now we feel as we acknowledge that and move forward that we also also have a lot to share that is uh, reveals a, a lot of wealth that we still have amongst our people the connection with uh, all living things, the practices of our indigenous values make us very wealthy people. And uh, that's being taught at the same time. I understand that one of the programs that you have is actually a podcast in which the young people are creating programs that are exploring what it means to be young and indigenous. The whole thing about identity is... uh, really not talked about too much in the greater society, but you look at our young people and they're looking for something, you know, they're looking for their place or their identity. Well, we thought we'd put this together so we could have our young people explore those very same questions and then also realize that they really do have a lot to offer. And uh, we encourage that. Do you learn from them? Oh, heck yeah. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. Education is kind of like a, a ladder. But then when you think about um, with, with no salmon and no connection to the water because of lack of salmon, those stories and that wisdom, the opportunities to pass that on is diminishing. And so we see that. That's an alarm, you know. The salmon's the miner's canary because of that, you know. The, the, the time with elders, the time with family, the time of those fishers that really understand the water and, and the salmon and 
and everything connected to the water, that's not uh, shared as often as it used to be. Like in my generation, you'd fish from June till October, and, and now it's it's sparse, you know, it's far and few between. As you're describing kind of in contrasting your experience growing up with young people today and the way they are talking about embracing and challenging maybe even some notions about what it means to be, to use the title of your podcast, Young and Indigenous, I wonder how you see them engaging in the political and public discourse around land, around climate, around how we treat the waters and the salmon. Well, uh, the short videos that we've been producing, we've been bringing them to NGOs across the country, but we've also started sharing with uh, in the political circles. Olympia is our state capital, and we took our films and we went down there and hosted an event there with the uh, congressional leaders, and uh, we put our youth forward in moderating and developing prompts and uh, responding to the things that we're doing. So you just really move you know, them to those arenas as much as you can. Uh, as, what better learning than to, than to actually engage? You know, you'll learn from what you don't know as well as what you do know. Sure, and it sounds like it's also an opportunity to, to demonstrate leadership at a young age. Oh, yeah. The feedback was is that we are sharing stories that go to a deeper level than typically a news agency or uh, a network or a documentarian from somebody that's non-tribal would do because we share the heart more than we do the mind. We share our history. We have personal questions that we're able to ask because of that. So that kind of feedback kind of tells us we're on the right track here. Do you think we're at a new kind of inflection point when it comes to raising awareness about the impact of colonialism and settler colonialism in the United States? You know, I, I could say yes with the people that we work with, but then I would have to say I don't know because uh, on one level, it seems like we are because we do have NGOs, we do have church groups, we do have universities that we engage with on this approach that we're taking. But then I always think about like a football stadium, like Seattle Stadium, and how many of these people even care about what's going on around them in the environment and salmon and water, you know, and it's probably very minimal, you know. Um, so when we get to that point, I think I can say, yeah, we're really making a difference, but we're growing our network. And now we're from Alaska to to California. So I think we have a better shot at it, you know. How many Native peoples identify as salmon people? Yeah, that's that's really... Uh, it's not just the Winnemum Wintu. It's not just the Lumi. It's not just the yeah. folks that you've mentioned. You chose the name salmon people for a reason. What is your sense of how big that community is? I think it's uh, probably almost every people along both the East Coast and West Coast of America. But, you know, well, in some places, the salmon's been gone for, you know, over two centuries. But there's a people that still identify as being salmon people. I have friends over on the Martha's Vineyard, uh, and they said, we're going to bring salmon back someday, you know, and it's been gone for a long, long time. But the belief is still there. 
up and down the coast, we're finding every time we go to another community, they talk about salmon. They talk about what they once had. I don't think it's like limited to what we've gathered so far, which is 17 tribes. I think it's pretty much all peoples along any river that pours into the ocean, either on the west coast or east coast. Do you remember your great-grandfather, Frank Hilaire? Uh, no, he died in 1934, I think. Mm. And my dad sat on his lap, though. Tell me the stories that your dad shares with you. Well, he uh, he felt that uh, my great-grandfather, who still didn't speak, really speak English, you know, he spoke our, our native tongue, but that he was quite funny and he was quite entertaining. And he wanted folks to keep his fires burning and that he was a spokesperson and he was a singer and dancer that he shared with everybody, you know. So... Mm. Um, Dad talked about that quite often. When my great-grandfather died, then his son, Joe Hilaire, picked it up. They really were uh, a force to share and educate uh, people about our life way. My calling now is to pass it on, you know pass what I'm doing on to the young folks. I feel very uh, committed to ensuring that my grandson and his friends that work here pick up these responsibilities. We always talk about treaty rights, but with those treaty rights comes a responsibility to protect and to to share, you know, and to give thanks, you know. And uh, if we start there, then we can, we can, argue with anybody on whatever terms that might be, whether it be political terms or you know, social media terms, if we know and understand what our inheritance is for this place that we live in, then we, we can better love the work that we're doing. Mm. What is something that you encourage people to do? If we can stand together, we got a chance, you know, but we can't give up hope on... Uh, ourselves, you know, we need to join together. And if we can do that, I think, you know, there, there's hope in that, you know, and we, we stand alone and we live in isolation. It, it doesn't look very good. But when I work with people of the same mind and they're not going to give up and they're going to, they're going to share, I, I feel hope in that. You draw energy from them. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to ask you about spirituality for a moment and religion. When you yeah. hear those two terms in the context of your world, what what do they what do they mean for you? Well, um, it's it's a practice, you know, and our spiritual practices are in the winter, where we take this journey inward, and we do that in the smokehouses throughout the Coast Salish territory, and the songs that we sing, and the time that we spend together, and the uh, ceremonies that we practice. All is for our inner, our inner being, our wellness, you know. And we draw from each other that uh, the spirit of our ancestors, because uh, that's what they did, you know. And it's that belief that that sustains us. So we have that, and it's not a religion; it's a practice, you know. There's no, mm. you know, organized religion in any of that, you know. Your connection to the spirit is is for you to know and understand. 
but you share that understanding with others. And as you describe kind of the beliefs and the way you belong to each other and the rituals, it sounds like they are important threads that hold your community together. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Been going on for a long, long time. It wasn't allowed. It was outlawed at one point back in my dad's generation. So I didn't live it, but my dad talked about it somewhat, you know. They uh, they knew that, uh, you know, this termination was was uh, was occurring, you know, on all fronts, yeah. whether it be boarding schools or outlawing spiritual practices or stopping people from fishing. It was, it was an onslaught. When you would hear those stories, how did they make you feel? Growing up, then you begin to understand your own being. Like, why don't I know my language? And why am I not singing and performing, you know, like the old people? Why are we so disconnected in attending church, you know? And you have to learn through time uh, what happened to my, my parents and my grandparents in terms of that deliberate effort to, you know, kill the Indian and save the man. And here you are today channeling your great-grandfather's um, kind of mantra, keep my fires yeah. burning. Yeah, yeah, it's time to share. David Hilaire is the executive director and founder of Children of the Setting Sun. The organization includes the Salmon People Project and Children of the Setting Sun Productions. That's all for the show. This week's producer is Kevin McCarthy. A special thanks to Maureen Fiedler, our founder, and MC Yogi for our theme music, additional music by Blue Dot Sessions, and a special thanks to the production team at The Spiritual Edge. To learn more about this week's guest, visit the show notes at interfaithradio.org. And there we'll have links to the documentary, A Sacred Obligation, as well as links to David Hilaire's group, Setting Sun Productions, if you'd like to learn more. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or really the podcaster of your choice. Just search Interfaith Voices. And while you're there, help us out. Leave a rating and a review. It helps others find us. As we wrap up this week's show, we are looking ahead and would love to know what show topics or ideas do you have for an upcoming episode? If you have an idea, I want to hear from you. Email me at amber at interfaithradio.org. That's amber, A-M-B-E-R, at interfaithradio.org. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices. We're a nonprofit, and we rely on the generous support of our listeners to bring you this show. Wherever you are, friends, I hope you are safe, I hope you are well, and I hope you stay connected. I'll see you next week.